Good morning, everyone. Uh, just a couple of quick updates, just uh, on some changes uh, in our staff team. Jeff mentioned the big one. Um, he came on board this week, and it's been a great week. He's going to be a great addition to our staff team. We're really thankful for that. Mark continues on through the end of the year to help with that transition, and so you can just be praying for all of those things. Um, another one that I've mentioned to you, but just want to remind you, Lynn Hale was our administrative assistant, had a job opportunity that she just couldn't pass up, and we agreed that it was a great opportunity for her, so she has moved on to that, but they are still involved in ministry. In fact, they're up in the sound booth this morning, so we're glad they're still around. And in her place, um, Ashley Beatty, so Brian's wife, Ashley, has stepped in on a temporary basis and will be with us through the end of the year. And after the first of the year, we'll look at uh, filling that uh, permanently, but just kind of wanted you to know kind of what was happening around here. So anyway, with that being said, I want you to take just a minute and think about your favorite dessert. I know that's kind of unfair, right? Because we're, here we are close to lunch and now I've stirred it up for you. But I want you to think about your favorite dessert. Mine's creme brulee, right? I love creme brulee. But it is so rich and so good. You just kind of have to be careful not to eat too much at one time or it'll give you a headache. You just want to savor every little bite. The reason I bring that up is because I think it it reminds me of um, our study in Romans. Um, It is so rich and so good. And you want to savor every single bite. And sometimes you have to be careful not to take too much in at one time because there are so many truths that can give you a headache. But more than anything, you just really miss out if you skim through uh, all the individual truths that are so significant in this letter. But that being said, it's also good from time to time, just kind of take a step back and think about where we've come so far. Because all we've been learning fits into the big story of the Bible. And that story from start to finish centers around one single person. The Bible is ultimately a story about Jesus. And without the presence of Jesus, we just need to know it's not a very good story. In fact, it's a really short story. Because apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. End of story. That's not very good, is it? Our sin has earned God's wrath. And there is absolutely nothing that we can do to change that fact. But because of Jesus and through Jesus, the story doesn't have to end that way. Paul says we are made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, that we have been justified as a gift of God's grace. And all of the Bible proclaims this truth over and over again. In fact, Paul has gone back several thousand years to the promise that God made to Abraham. He actually made three promises to Abraham. He promised him a land, he promised him a seed, and he promised him a blessing. And to be honest, it's easy to get all these promises confused, but they're all really important. In fact, last week I talked about the covenant ceremony that took place where God passed through those sacrifices alone, and I made the point that it was because of that process that God established a unilateral, unconditional covenant with Abraham. And that's absolutely true. But the 
covenant ceremony was actually specific to the land God promised and not the seed as I had suggested last week. So I apologize, even I get confused at times as well. But the reason that's important is because the land promise of those three, land, seed, and blessing, the land promise that God made to Abraham is the only one out of those three promises that has yet to be fulfilled. The Jewish people have never possessed the full scope of the land God promised to Abraham, but they will. And we believe that takes place in the millennial kingdom. Now, that's a whole nother topic for another day, but he will fulfill that promise. And even though it's easy to get these things confused, we need to understand that God always keeps his promises. That's the point we don't want to forget. In fact, the Bible tells us that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. But Paul has been focusing primarily on that promise number two, the promise of the seed. In fact, just to make sure we're all clear on this, I want us to go back to a passage we looked at last week in Galatians chapter 3, and I want you to look at it beginning in verse 16. So go back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, and let's let Paul make this clear for us. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham, this is what we've been talking about, and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later, after that promise made to Abraham, does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Again, he's referring to the promise of that seed. A promise that through the seed of Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Paul makes it clear here in Galatians that he's talking specifically about the seed of Abraham, which is Jesus Christ. God made that promise. As we remember from our study and going back to Genesis, well before Abraham had any children. He told Abraham, your descendants will be as innumerable as the stars in heaven. And Abraham believed. He believed that God had the power to fulfill that promise and the integrity to keep his word. And the scripture tells us, and because of his faith, it was credited to him as righteousness. See, Abraham did not earn God's favor. He received the gift of God's grace. Paul has been saying, when we follow that example of Abraham's faith, we are one of his promised descendants. By faith, we believe that God fulfilled his promise through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He's the promised seed. And we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. That he who knew no sin became sin, get this, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's how it's credited to us, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
And let me just say, as we, we talk about that, it's important to understand that that path to righteousness, everything that I've just described to you from the testimony of biblical truth is very unique in comparison to all other world religions that you can ever find. In fact, Philip Yancey says it this way. He says, the Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish code of law, and Islam's five tenets, every single one of them offer a way to earn approval in order to gain salvation. Christianity is very different. It actually says the only thing we truly earn is God's wrath for our sin. Our salvation is something that we must receive. It is not something that we can achieve. It requires us to admit our weakness, to acknowledge our inadequacy, to admit our, our need for help. We have to relinquish control. Let go of our pride. Give up trying to fix our lives. In the end, it's really not even about inviting Jesus into our life. I know that's a common phrase in our world today. I've heard it growing up. But really, it's not about inviting Jesus into your life. It's about handing your life over to Jesus. That's what this is about. Putting all our hope in him. Because we believe that Christ alone fulfills the promises of God. From start to finish, we need to understand that our salvation is a miraculous work of God. There's no other way to explain it. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, it's very clear. We have been chosen by the Father. We have been saved by the Son. We have been sealed by the Spirit. From start to finish, our salvation is a miraculous work work of God. It's something that we receive, not anything that we achieve. So before we look at our passage this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what else would we say? But thank you. Thank you for not requiring us to meet a standard that's acceptable in your eyes, knowing that nobody could ever meet that standard. Thank you that you accomplished for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you for grace that is extended to us every single day as we consistently fall short despite our good intentions. Lord, thank you for your grace that builds our faith so, so that over time that we learn to trust in you more and know that you're faithful to fulfill your promises, whether that's to Abraham or to us. Father, strengthen that as we look at your word this morning and speak to our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to uh, Romans chapter 4, and we'll pick up where we left off last, Romans chapter 4, verse 16. And so if you want to follow along with me, read uh, beginning in verse 16, where Paul says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations I have made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, 
who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Paul says, faith introduces us to grace and the guarantee of God's promise. A promise that credits righteousness to all that follow Abraham's example of faith. A promise ultimately fulfilled, as we've been talking about, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because the only way that a sinner can become righteous is if he is made righteous. It is a gift that we receive, not an outcome that we can achieve. And as Paul has repeated several times, there is no partiality with God. In other words, everyone needs it. <laughs> and we know that's true because of what we saw in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's available to everyone because everyone needs it. Whether Jew or Gentile, whether religious or self-righteous or unrighteous or immoral, it doesn't matter. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified by faith, as a gift of God's grace. And Paul says that promise is guaranteed. That word is intended to communicate the fact that it is fixed. It is certain. It is eternally secure. And the number one reason, don't, don't miss this, the number one reason that's true is because it does not depend on us. God's promise is guaranteed by his all-powerful, all-knowing perfection. That's why it's guaranteed. Paul then goes to Genesis chapter 17. He keeps taking us back there, and I think it's good to look at that together. So if you would, keep your finger here in Romans and flip on over to Genesis chapter 17. And I want us to look at that encounter that he will reference in verse 17 but we're going to begin in chapter 17, verse 1, and look at this together, if you want to follow along with me. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. As a reminder... Abraham and Sarah keep getting older and older every single day. We learn here in this passage that they are, he's 99 years old, so he's almost 100 years old, and yet they still have no children. But God keeps promising, as he did in this passage, to bless him exceedingly, but from a human perspective, it does seem like he's running out of time, doesn't it? But in this passage, God brings even more clarity to his promise. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, you don't have to do that now, but when you do, you'll find that he promises Abraham that he will make him a great nation. And in that context, he's speaking specifically about Israel. 
a nation that would be formed as of, of Abraham's direct descendants. And from this people, there would be a seed who would become the Savior of the world, and that is Jesus Christ. But here, God says that there will be more than just this one nation. That in addition to his direct descendants, there will be people groups who follow Abraham's example of faith. People from every nation. And this detail is so important that he built it into his name. Because up to this point, he'd been called Abraham. That was the name he was born with. It means exalted father. And now, God changes his name and says, you will be called Abraham. Which means father of a multitude. A multitude of people who are related to Abraham by following his example of faith. A people from every tribe, from every tongue, and from every nation. Now, let's go back to Romans chapter 4, verse 17. And let me read that again as it references what we just walked through in Genesis chapter 17. As it is written, a father of many nations I have made you. Now we understand. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. See, Abraham's faith was exemplary not because it was perfect. In fact, we talked about last week how Abraham faltered in more than one way. It wasn't the strength of Abraham's faith. It was the object of Abraham's faith. That's the example that we are called to follow. Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead to life and creates something out of nothing. Anyone here able to do either of those two things? Dead to life, something out of nothing. And if God can do that, then clearly nothing is impossible with God. So if God can do anything, That means that we can trust him with everything because nothing is impossible with God. He who brings the dead to life and creates something out of nothing. God does the impossible. And get this, not because of our great faith, but because of his great power, because of his great grace, a power that brings the dead to life. And creates something out of nothing. It wasn't the strength of Abraham's faith. It was the object of Abraham's faith that Paul keeps pointing us back to. Let's continue in verse 18 and you'll see this play out. Verse 18, it says, In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which he had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. And yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Paul says Abraham hoped against hope. And what he's saying here is Abraham put all of his hope in God. Even though Sarah's womb was dead, she was clearly barren, unable to have children, God has the power to create life. 
And even though Abraham had no heirs, God has the power to create something out of nothing. Abraham's faith was in who made the promise, not just what the promise said would happen. Paul says that Abraham considered all these things without becoming weak in faith. He even goes on in verse 20 and says, he did not waver in unbelief. And I'll be honest with you, when I first read that, I thought, now wait a second, that's not completely true, is it? I mean, because it does seem like Abraham wavered in his faith. For example, when he was in Egypt, he was afraid for his life, so he lied and said that his wife, Sarah, was actually his sister, and then he handed her over to them. Not great faith, okay? The other thing we talked about last week was Abraham had this promise from God that he would have many descendants, and then he goes and has a child with his maidservant, Hagar. Seems to waver. Even in chapter 17, the passage that we looked at just now, if you follow it later on, God reaffirms his promise to Abraham that he would, he and Sarah would have a child. And you know what he did? He laughed at him. He laughed at God because it was just an unbelievable statement. So it seems to me that Abraham's faith did waver over time. And that may be true. But here's what I believe Paul is trying to tell us. Abraham never wavered because the object of Abraham's faith never changed. Abraham never wavered because the object of Abraham's faith never changed. Abraham never, ever placed his faith in anyone other than God. Now, He might have wrongly reasoned with human understanding. Anybody guilty of that around here? Okay, he might have done that. He might have been overcome by doubt and fear. Anybody ever been overcome by doubt and fear? Okay, so it applies to him as well. But he never abandoned God as his only hope. Abraham believed God alone brings hope to the hopeless. And over time, God patiently and graciously strengthened his faith. We see that being played out. It's communicated in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where it says, He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. And gradually over time, Abraham's trust in God continued to grow. So that in the end, Abraham's faith did not let fear dictate his decisions. In the end, Abraham didn't rely on human reasoning or even doubt what God can do to the point that when he finally had that promised son, Isaac, his only son, the promise of which his descendants would flow out of, and God said, kill him. Sacrifice your only son. Abraham believed the impossible. Let me show you. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. This is incredible. Hebrews chapter 11. And I want you to follow along with me beginning in verse 17. The writer of Hebrews gives us insight into the mind of Abraham when all of this took place. And I want you to listen closely to what we can learn. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He's trying to impress upon the point that this is a big deal. That Isaac is the promise that God had made. And and now he's saying, put an end to that. How did he do that? He answers that. Look at verse 19. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham believed that God could do the impossible, that he could sacrifice Isaac, and that would be okay because God would bring Isaac back from the dead. Why? Because he's the God who brings the dead to life and creates something out of nothing. Abraham's faith grew to the point that he believed God in defiance to human reasoning. It made no human sense. But he believed that God can do the impossible because nothing is impossible for God. The object of his faith never changed. He trusted in God, and over time, God graciously grew his faith. And the same is true for us. If we keep our eyes on God, if we continue to follow that invitation to trust in him, our faith will grow as well. Because Philippians applies to us also. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. It's not the strength of our faith. It's the object of our faith that matters most. Look at how he continues in verse 22 of our passage. Paul goes on and closes out this section in verse 22. He says, Therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now not for his sake only was it written that it would be credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. You see, when Abraham put all of his hope in God, God credited it to him as righteousness. Paul repeats this several times, and not just as a historical fact, But he tells us here it's for our benefit as well. God spoke those words to Abraham so that we would hear them too. So this is not just a story about Abraham. This is a story about us. This is a story about you and I as well. Because God credits righteousness to everyone who follows his example of faith. We receive this righteousness by faith because of what was accomplished by Jesus Christ. Paul tells us here that we believe that he was delivered over for our transgressions. In other words, Jesus died because of our sins. We believe, as we've talked about over and over again, our sin has earned the judgment of God's wrath. But on the cross, Jesus Christ took that judgment upon himself. We believe that his sacrifice was a payment for our sins sufficient to satisfy God's justice. But then, God did the impossible. He raised Jesus from the dead. He brought the dead to life. And we are justified, Paul says, because of the resurrection. Where the crucifixion paid the penalty of our sins, the resurrection broke the power 
of sin. The resurrection didn't just bring the dead to life for Jesus. The resurrection brought the dead to life for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. And, And I don't know about you, but I think death is a pretty hopeless place to be, right? You can't change that. It is what it is. And yet, if you go on in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our sin, get this, made us alive together with Christ. He did the impossible and brought hope to the hopeless. He brought the dead back to life. Where there was no righteousness, He credited with his righteousness. By faith, we are instantly and eternally accepted in the eyes of God. Made alive, eternally, in Jesus Christ. Now, once again, I want to remind you that God did the impossible not because of our great faith, but because of God's great power. And like Abraham, the more we learn to trust him, the stronger our faith will grow. In fact, I'd go so far as to say this. I believe our faith will grow in proportion to the size of our God. Don't miss that, okay? Write that down. Think about what it says. Our faith will grow in proportion to the size of our God. Chuck Swindoll tells a story about a famous uh, faculty member at Princeton Theological Seminary by the name of Robert Wilson. He was a brilliant man. He knew 45 ancient languages, okay? That's right, 45 ancient languages in order to understand the Bible more clearly. But he was most known for his assessment of his students' preaching. And no, he didn't critique them on the use of the original language. He didn't see how powerful their application was. He focused on one single thing. He wanted to know if their message centered around a big God or a little God. In fact, he was quoted once as saying, I come to see if my students are big godders or little godders, and then I'll know what their ministry will be. I'll take that a step further and say, let me listen to see if you or I are a big godder or a little godder, and then I'll tell you how strong your faith will be. Are you overwhelmed by your circumstances? Are you easily shaken by struggle? Are you worried about the future? If you're ruled by these emotions, okay, if these things consume you and you can't get past them, then maybe, just maybe, your God is too small. Let me just tell you, this is something I've had to wrestle with in recent months. Because sometimes my emotions can overwhelm my faith, and I don't like that. I want to grow and be stronger in that. And I think for all of us, we need to fix our eyes on God and ask Him to strengthen our faith, just like He did with Abraham. We need to be convinced that God can do the impossible, that He works all things for good, including, get this, our suffering, our grief, and our pain. And through it all, he is worthy to receive glory and honor and praise.
But here's the good news. Some of you hear me say that, and you are honest when you say, I, I hear you, but I'm just not there yet. And that's okay. Because here's the good news. God's grace will get you there. That's what he did with Abraham, and he can do it with us as well. Abraham certainly faltered along the way. We established that fact, but God continued to extend his grace. God continued to invite him to trust in him. And over time, as Abraham accepted that invitation, his faith continued to grow. Our faith will grow in proportion to the size of our God. A.W. Tozer is one of my favorite authors. Um, And one of the things that he was quoted as saying is, when God is exalted to his rightful place in your life, a thousand problems are solved at one time. When God is exalted to his rightful place in your life, a thousand problems are solved at one time. He goes on and says in another place, the most important thing about us is what we think about when we think about God. So this week, I want to encourage you to do something. I've pointed you to this place before, but it's my favorite place to go when I need to be reminded just how big our God is. So this week, at some point, I want you to read through Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And I just want you to be reminded as you listen to how the bigness of God is being described, I want you to be reminded of just how big He is, how great He is, and if He can do anything, then you can trust Him with everything. Our faith will grow in proportion to the size of our God. And ask him, ask him to strengthen your faith, to be consistent with the work of his power. Our faith will grow in proportion to the size of our God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance to spend time in your word. And just again, be reminded of the powerful work of grace that you have done in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that unlike everything else that we see in our world around us, Our salvation is not dependent upon what we achieve, but instead what we receive. And that we are not judged by the strength of our faith. We are judged by the object of our faith. So, Father, we want to put our faith and trust in you this morning. We want to admit that we are weak, that we are needy. But we put all of our hope in you. And we do believe, God, that you can do anything, that nothing is impossible with you. And if you do anything, then we can trust you with everything. And so may we rest in that promise. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would stand, let's sing together. Wow, that's good news, right? Amen. I've uh, heard uh, more than once that people feel sometimes when you preach a message of grace, like we talked about this morning, that it can be really dangerous because then people will take advantage of it. And my response to that is, is not if you understand the grace that we just talked about this morning. It is freedom. It is freedom to live with the assurance of God being in complete control, having accomplished everything that needs to be done, and being eternally secure so that you can live in no matter what circumstances we face with the assurance that he works all things for good according to his purposes. Amen? So let's leave this morning 
with the assurance of that grace, the assurance of those promises, and let it impact every single ounce of how you live this week. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for the reminder of all that you've accomplished. Thank you for the privilege of being able to come to you, not because of what we've accomplished, but because of what Jesus accomplished. That it's not what we achieve, but what we receive from you. This is a work of grace. May we live in that grace and may it set us free, free to forgive, free to have hope, put all of our hope in you and know that nothing is impossible and we can trust you with everything. May we live in that truth this week and we pray this in your most gracious, holy name. Amen. Have a great day.